0: I'm Ian Horn, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Clara Giraudier. Uh, some of you will be familiar with Clara from the fourth version of our FinTech forum, uh, but an introduction is worthwhile nonetheless. So Clara is a technology strategist with a focus on the business and governance of artificial intelligence and financial services. She's advised the World Economic Forum's fourth Industrial Revolution Centre in San Francisco, as well as the All-Party Group for Artificial Intelligence in the UK. She's a board director, too, with ample experience in working with C-suite executives to design businesses that are built to succeed. Uh, and Clara, we'll get into all of that shortly. Um, but for now, thank you for joining me. My first question, and this is a very much a kind of open forum question, is what's on your mind today?
1: Well, it's it's lovely and sunny today, so I'm um, I'm really happy. <laughs> you know, that's uh, the sun is on my mind today, so it's very busy. That's great. I, I love asking it's, that question. The sun is amazing. Yeah,
0: because it, it could be anything, can't it? I I like the fact that someone might give you some kind of very tech focused answer. Sometimes it's the sun. Someone might be miserable because of a sports result. I <laughs> I just like to ask that question. Um, so yeah, it is a nice sunny day, isn't it? And I think I'm in a good mood. Seems like you are too. Um, so Clara. Um, Look, you spoke at our fintech forum a month or so back. Um, So some of the audience will know who you are and know about your work. Um, But although I I realize I did mention a few things, but can you can you tell us a little about yourself uh, and especially your work with AI automation uh, and working with leaders in financial services?
1: So my background is assets and wealth management. Uh, So that's where I I gained the experience as an industry practitioner. Um, And in 2014, I decided to leave the corporate life and go a completely different route. A lot of people thought, what on earth are you even doing? You know, you're leaving your comfortable senior role at a respectable, like really successful um, company in the city. Why you do what, what's on your mind? Um, So I was committed to... um, to, to to invest time and energy and uh, prepare myself for what I believed back then. And I had believed since 2011 that there, there was a technology um, wave tsunami in front of us as an industry. And uh, 2014, uh, as it happened, was the end of a big project I was working on. And it was just the right time to to pack my things and go and study, and which I did for 2015. Um, I studied um, what today is known as neuroeconomics, is the intersection of uh, neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and in my case, wealth management, primarily looking at how our brain operates and engages with us when we spend money, when we invest money, and um, what kind of brain activity, and how can we use that knowledge to build technology which people can trust rather than technology which people fear or want to avoid. Mm-hmm. Because trust in our industry is one of the core tenets. Whether we, do our, we deliver services by hand or you know scribble on some black notebook, as the industry was known many, many years ago, or we use the latest technology, trust is always going to be there. And as we know, trust mm-hmm. can be, is built over a long period of time and it can be destroyed um, in moments. So my focus has always been since 2015 is how to build technology which we can trust um, as users. And mm-hmm. obviously that's good business, business, because if we, if companies deliver and uh, the, the promotes and use for their client engagement, technology which clients build trust with then everybody's a winner. So I think it's just, uh, it's not rocket science uh, at that point. Mm-hmm. You
0: know, the whole trust element and the ethics angle. Um, I realize you're about to build on that. So please do, please Absolutely. do. It, it's funny how we always have these conversations and that sometimes never gets brought up, you know?
1: Absolutely. And I think I think we need to talk a lot a lot more about trust. So I start, my journey has started from building technology uh, for trust. Um and then it took me to, obviously, I, I learned how to code. I got really deep into the tech business because I didn't want to be um, someone working around the tech. I wanted to be someone who works in the tech with engineers because that's where the value is. You know, if because I have the business experience and the industry experience, um, it's, it's being able to engage with engineers, understand their problems, understand how they think and then uh, convert all of that into business um, um, proposals. Um, Because technology without a business objective and productive one, it's just a waste of money and time, right? So my my journey started from from the concept of building trust with technology. It took me through learning how to code and working with engineers and getting into the tech And then it took me the next natural step into ethical and ethics, data ethics, ethical AI, Um, and the whole conversation about how is it a business case for ethical AI or not? And the answer is simple. Yes, there is a business case for ethical AI. And anyone who's making investments in this technology going forward should always consider this one line. Ethical AI for business Mm -hmm. growth and uh, profitability. That's the only way. Because my submission to you and to the audience here is that um, the successful companies uh, in 20 years, uh, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years from now, 50 years, are companies which um, are there to build trust, uh, put ethics at the core of everything they do. And yes, you can do business by doing that.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's funny because I think sometimes when we have these conversations around tech developments, it's easy to kind of come across as a luddite. Sometimes uh, when you talk about how it can go wrong, I mean, our last episode we were speaking to to Roger Cameras, who helped build the internet, and I, I did ask him, you know, if he regretted it at all in some respects, which is you yeah, know totally the wrong way to look at it in a sense. But certainly, without ethics underpinning what we do, it's it clearly going to go horribly, horribly wrong somewhere. Maybe not exactly like the Terminator films, but possibly something similar. So anyway, um, I, I want to look at your work with leading C-suite executives, because that's that's got to be absolutely fascinating for you uh, to be able to speak to you know, really important people but help to generate a real positive change in their businesses and what they do. Um, so if you could, could you talk us through an example of a company who you've worked with and the kind of you know provided i'm sure that it's a company who would be happy with you discussing it but could you talk me through what you did to make sure they could catch that kind of wave of change that you were talking about earlier
1: well i'm over the the past few years um since i founded cognitive finance uh we've done work with a number of companies uh not only in asset and wealth management but also investment banks and uh and retail banks and uh to insurance companies but um I think what I'd like to to convey here is rather than one um, use case I think uh, perhaps I would like to give you a summary like a common denominator which I have seen across all these businesses um, and hopefully this is a good uh, sort of takeaway point for for the audience. so the first the the first most important takeaway from my experience in in this different business models and advising uh, them. Is that if you do not have a business strategy with clear business objectives, like we want to have, I don't know, increase assets under management or fund under management by twenty percent, thirty percent, or we want to reach different markets or different segments, or we want to, what is the strategy? So if you don't have clear strategy, then the only thing you're doing, you are just doing what the. Uh, quite a lot of consultants recommend the lowest hanging fruit in investing in tech. (laughs) And that cannot be, uh, it's the most, is the, is the, um, the rabbit hole. I call it the rabbit hole. And I've seen it time and again, actually, it's something which should be avoided. Piecemeal approach, lowest hanging fruit. We're going to run with it and see what happens afterwards. It's a time consuming and very expensive exercise. And here's why. Um, a lot of AI projects, so you know, um, and this we have data now. Uh, it's um, I think it's a stat from IDC. Um, 96% of the uh, AI projects go to waste. They don't make any money. And they don't make money because they can't scale them, in a nutshell. And that's one of the biggest problems. Mm-hmm. And this is one core takeaway. So point one point one is have a a clear business objective ahead of you. That's where you start. How much money do you wanna make? What markets do you wanna reach? How many clients you want to have on your, on your books? What kind of clients, regions, and so on and so forth. Once you have that, then you come in and build the technology to de- deliver on that objective. If you put, so you lead with the business, you follow with technology to deliver on the objectives. What I've seen time and again being done is that leaders decide to do the other thing, the other way around, is they lead with a tech, and then they wonder why that they don't, um, you know, the tech is not delivering. Um, some extraordinary stats still from IDC across other sectors, like they interviewed about 3,000 CEOs, um, and the, major- the vast majority of those CEOs were disappointed with innovation projects and digital transformation projects because they did not deliver um, on their their promise. So obviously the, uh, the leadership questions that, why are we spending money on this? The board questions that, why are we spending money on this? And then everybody gets disappointed. So yeah, one main takeaway, which is applicable to everybody, lead with a business objectives first, then follow with strategy, but follow in such a way that it's meaningful, it makes sense, it's a joined up approach. It's not a piecemeal lowest hanging fruit um, quilting project. Because yeah. you'll never be able to scale for a lot of technical reasons. You're not going to be able to scale a, a, a strategy which is like a, a joint, like disjointed. Uh, like a quilt, yeah, different colors, no, absolutely, no meaning.
0: And it reminds me of, of the things you, you mentioned, and we had the the fintech forum actually, because you you were discussing at that that event about um you know a proper tech led approach isn't about shortcuts or putting sticking plasters over problems or or, or necessarily trying to, to plug things in ad hoc to to fit. You, you kind of said that leaders sometimes will need to completely overhaul what they're doing and, and create a new you know with technology it's possibly a whole new tech ecosystem yeah. from scratch. So could you tell us a bit more about that approach and and you know what advice you have for leaders with regards to that who, who want to put technology at the heart of their business? Mm. Because this, this is no small undertaking, is it? Mm,
1: absolutely. It takes a lot of courage, um, and it takes a lot of courage at the board level and the leadership. And that courage can never be derived from anything else apart from the knowledge of what people are deciding on. So, um, and I'm going to come back to the um, technology literacy, digital literacy, at the board level, and the, the, which is mm-hmm. a big problem. I find it. So, um, to come back to your point, um, I think it's, uh, it's very important for uh, for decision makers to um, have the courage. First of all, educate themselves. Okay, it's very important to understand what you're getting yourself into. It's a big thing. It's a bit undertaking, as you said. Um, second point is that piecemeal approach, um, is false economies. Um, I hear time and time and time again, um, saying like, yeah, are we going to try this and see if it works? So, cause we don't want to spend a lot of money on it. Uh, you see, it just, we're just tiptoeing around the big elephant in the room. Um, so that's not the right, uh, approach. Uh, it's very expensive, false economies. So what I suggest, um, with a courage uh, one would be able to to gather by having the knowledge and the vision, um, I would recommend um, building, building a system which is a, a, an architecture, a full technology stack, which is independent from the one you're currently using, and try to look into building a, a end-to-end solution. There are... And to your, and my final point to your question, there are platforms providers in wealth management, which do they do a good job in aiming to deliver this end-to-end uh, solutions. So that would be a parallel technology stack, um, which might be worth in, you know exploring, seeing whether it's mm-hmm. the business model or or not. So it's very important to avoid, I would say this piecemeal approach, lowest hanging fruit. The moment anybody says that to you, just run away. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it's funny, isn't it? I, I think in most industries, you wouldn't try to build a kind of rival proposition to the one that you already have. But when it comes to your tech stack, it seems to me that it's so important, not only to try, you know continually try and improve what you've got, but as you say, if you can, if you have the resources to create something new, Um, And, you know, is there anything that a small business owner can take from this because that, you know, I realize you're working with some leading companies here that have resources, but what if, you know, let's look at our financial advice listeners, a lot of those companies are five or fewer staff. Is it more a case for them? They'll need to look for product providers that are doing that rather than, you know, is there any value for them taking that same approach to their technology?
1: I think I think there are there is value in trying to see how they can automate the entire value chain uh, by using uh, one of the providers because I, I, it doesn't make any sense to actually invest in building something uh, in house because it's it's quite cumbersome mm-hmm. and um, it might not make sense uh, for a small uh, entity but it it makes mm-hmm. perfect sense to look at um solution providers which are able to automate as much as possible of the value current value, value chain uh, which they have that would be the first mm-hmm. idea to to bear in mind
0: okay and, and something else you, you discussed uh, when when we last uh, had a chat which I, th- I found really interesting was obviously you you're working with the business leaders you're working with the management But you said that a tech-focused approach works best when everyone at the business knows what's going on, Uh, and and I find that a really interesting point and one that's probably overlooked by quite quite a lot of people, um, possibly very innocently, but I can imagine it happens. So what goes wrong when we don't include the whole business in these kind of tech overhauls? Um, And you know what? How do you explain the value of that to, to business leaders when you're working with them, Clara?
1: So we are moving into a different space in terms of this type of business model. So technology is forcing on us as an industry a different way to operate, a different way to, make, uh, to generate revenues, a different way to engage with clients, engage with our people. So it's a fundamental change of culture forced on us by this technology event we cannot we there it's futile to to try to avoid it um it's really futile it's i'm not here to to sell or you know think head in the clouds and forget about the business far from me i i spend far too much time actually uh uh in the business and looking at the bottom line of a business uh to to speak some you know had in the clouds, uh, vision. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think what is very important is to, rather than oppose and uh, reject change, is to try to um, look at how you can reinvent what you do in order to perhaps be more profitable. There must be a silver lining in all of this, right? Just look at the pandemic, right? We are all confined, we've been confined in our homes for 16 months now. And all of a sudden we, we actually, we realize that we can run businesses um, online and we don't have to travel for a day and a half to, you know, to be able to meet a client. Um, so that mm-hmm. is, th- these are gains which are possible. And what is very important is to, to look at what is available, take it. Allow yourself to be malleable, take it, and change with, with everything what's coming towards you. Be curious. And I, I work with leaders, and one of the first things I encourage them is to be intellectually curious. And it's, it's exciting stuff. And the more you know about something, the more you can see the positives and the negatives. And as a business leader, I think it's important or even a business owner, Um, I think it's important to see the negatives. So you protect yourself against them whilst benefiting on the upside.
0: Mm, uh, Clara, and I think you've, you've really set me up for the next question, actually, with this kind of idea of of thinking more broadly. Um, and, And, you know, you were talking about big theory and ideas of change, but also underpinning that with some real world knowledge, which, you know, it brings me on to the the fourth industrial revolution, which I, I'm aware that you, you know, as I said earlier, advised the World Economic Forum's, uh, you know, fourth industrial revolution center in San Francisco. Um, now, for anyone listening who's not fully aware of that, it's been theorized that we're now in this fourth industrial revolution, which builds on previous ones that have occurred. Uh, the fourth uh, evolution of, of this is basically, it's a digital revolution, isn't it, come to It's natural, not end point, but I I think it's kind of, well, it's gotten huge, isn't it? The idea is that we've been a digital age for so long uh, and there's a real coming of age now for technology with kind of exponential growth disrupting pretty much every industry and pretty much, if not every nation. So it's hyper-connectivity, it's mass communication, it's transformation of how we produce, manage and govern things. It's a a huge change. And, And Clara, this is clearly... Right up your street. Obviously, you advised on it, so I'm quite keen to know what kind of things you discussed with the World Economic Forum because that that sounds like a really really intriguing conversation.
1: Absolutely, they uh, they are doing an amazing job. Absolutely, I have to say they are the catalyst for so many um, innovative ideas, and they also enable businesses to to think about the downside of of this technology age. An new new industrial revolution age, so their work is phenomenal, and I think um, uh, the, the people should spend a lot of more time, uh, you know, exploring the the reports and everything uh, what they produced. Um, a lot of their work, actually, I I take it over and put it in our uh, regular newsletter, uh, which is a, a good platform for people to stay informed. But coming back to your point. Um, what did we discuss? So when, I, when they invited me to, to join their, I think it was the first or the second um, um, meeting with executives and guests uh, back in 2017, uh, they had been recently created as an entity, um, subsidiary of the, the big World Economic Forum. And the, it was just re- really interesting to discuss topics which business leaders thought back then that they were uh, important. Um, and each of us, we were invited to put forward ideas, uh, which would then be voted. And those which were voted, selected, uh, would become projects for the World Economic Forum to work on, as in like devote efforts, uh, resources, and uh, produce those reports um, so, I, what I proposed uh, put forward was that um, it's very important for board level ex, um, non-executives and executives to have a toolkit as part of digital literacy I mentioned earlier and technology literacy. And um, I was really pleased to to have been uh, my idea to have been selected, and it turned into uh, one of. Uh, the most popular i would say and very valuable uh, board tools uh, you can find out there about how to use ai and deploy it within your environment so um yes um i think th- th- that was one of the the, the core discussions uh, how can we help leadership to to enable them to see what's ahead of them
0: mm-hmm. and, and what do you think the kind of fourth industrial revolution means for financial services because you yeah, know these these concepts in a sense are very everyday aren't they in the sense that it's digital transformation it's things people will be aware of uh, on the other hand they do sometimes feel or seem a bit abstract so you know if you're working in financial services and you know bearing in mind that you've got experience of of that too um what do you think this means you know what what's next for the financial services and what would you know what kind of trends would, he, would a young professional in the industry do well to Kind of be aware of
1: so what's next for financial services is that it's a continuous um, reinvention of how we used to do things and the the change is so dramatic um that if it's um it's so dramatic that actually some of the companies um which are operating today. My, my guess is that 50% of them actually will not exist in five to 10 years horizon. Um, what's mm. ahead of us? It will be a world where we can converse with, with our smartphone and have um, a trusted advisor uh, on how to, uh, you know, who will negotiate on our behalf with banks Um, the best mortgage, the best loan rates, um, who will uh, provide the right documentation uh, to secure uh, loans, to secure access to to finance. Um, And this is just one idea. This is why my academic interest is in neuroeconomics, because that's where we actually learn how to um, build these systems in a way in which they create a trusted, truly trusted environment with their users. Um, what advice should I give to the next generation coming, um, get, coming into the industry? Um, just continue to be intellectually curious, keep reading, um, because things will change happens um, and seems everything seems slow, but all of a sudden when change happens, everything seems so fast. Just be prepared for that moment. Wealth management, unlike retail banking, has been quite shielded from this uh, uh, fundamental changes so far Um, because uh, retail, this private money is always, as the industry says, quite sticky and people tend to stay together and use the same advisor. But things will change. Um, I have no doubt about it. And the next generation coming into this industry, they just need to continue to read and inform themselves about what's ahead of them.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and just one last question, if I may, you, you touched upon uh, neuroeconomics, right, and, and neuroscience. Um, I, I'm always fascinated by looking at how people twin things with technology to create better products. And you, you said, obviously, that people need to be aware of you know the workings of the brain to to create better solutions, so could you kind of give us a bit more insight on that and, and also maybe an example of uh, of that in action because it, it's always fascinating as i say to to see how technology isn't just about you know binary code or algorithm algorithms or whatever' it's It's, it's much broader than that
1: well technology is just the uh, the plumbing. Um, of what is happening when a client picks up their phone and engages with uh, with a service app. Um, in our industry, and, um, I keep saying that people have an emotional relationship with money, okay? And that's the point where we need to start thinking um, when we start building technology in wealth management or think of uh, buying technology for, for this industry. So it's, it's how, how well do we understand that emotional relationship our clients have with money? Um, and once we, we, we understand that, then we, we are able to perhaps anticipate how trust is being built and how we can avoid um, destroying trust. I know I speak a little bit of like in vague, vague terms here. Um, I, d- I don't want to burden the audience with uh, hyper-complicated concepts. Mm. But essentially, every time we engage with, with the iPhone or with our smartphone or with this camera or computers, um, there is a brain activity happening um, and some old triggers typically are brought to the fore. We have different type of memories, um, uh, but the um, one type of memory which is uh, collects all the information we've had since we were born, primarily uh, when we are young. That kind of memory can be the foundation for what triggers to for us to behave in a certain way. So I'll give you an example. Um, there are times when when people cannot we feel compelled to spend money. So we feel good about something. Um, People refer to it as um, um, emotional uh, shopping therapy or shopping therapy. That's...
0: Oh, yeah. Retail therapy. Retail therapy.
1: Okay. So that's, is is that, irrespective of how you call it, is people spend money in order to feel good about themselves. So that's a definition of how they feel their emotional relationship with money, or indeed their emotional state at that point. Um, when you build technology which aims to build to to recognize and observe um, the working as and in the innings of neuroeconomics, um, you build technology, or I would call it—I don't know if this term exists because this field is so young—neuroinvesting. Uh, I would call it. That's how it they refer to it, um, or spending. So when we build technology for for people to use, it would be useful to, for instance, have systems which pick up on uh, changing behavior or changing, uh, you know, type of spending or the type of items we buy or uh, whether we move far, you know, like we zigzag different locations. So I know that sounds... I'm all against people being closely monitored. That's very important. Mm. I like to clarify that. Um, What is very also equally important is to give people the option to allow technology to survey them in order to help them correct this habits, identify them and correct them. Um, These habits again are formed in this type of memory and they come to the fore uh their habits which we built since we were kids if we seen our parents struggling with money uh or we went through traumatic experiences when i know clients that they didn't have money to buy food um those are traumatic experiences those shape the emotional relationship one has with money and depending on the our emotional state when we make money sometimes we can go like shopping spree or mindlessly or not. But I think it's a, my point, And with this, I'd like to conclude um, this, this new field of neuroeconomics. Um, it's the, I would argue that is the foundational field to uh, start understanding the emotional relationship people have with money and convert it into a piece of tech which would help people to correct behavior, identify and correct behavior, which puts their wealth at risk. I hope this makes a little bit of sense.
0: Yes, Clara, Clara, I I do think I follow and it sounds fascinating. I've, I've seen some similar things, but I don't think anything that's exactly that. So, a really fascinating thing to finish on. Uh, look, thanks for joining me again, Clara. Always good to talk to you and good to good to see you again. Um, some some really useful lessons there, of course, for anyone involved in in business leadership and management and kind of wondering how they embrace tech. Uh, to everyone listening as well, thank you for tuning into the fintech show. Uh, I'll be back again in two weeks with more insights on the world of financial technology and also to look at how we can properly embrace the latest trends in tech.